in a fresh way, would you draw us to you to, to find you to be our life, help, and hope? We ask for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you grab a Bible and make your way to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Hey, we are beginning a brand new series uh, this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians where we will be working verse by verse. Excited over that. We want you to be there with us. So again, hoping you brought a Bible and you've opened it up to 2 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you. Grab one of those. Page number on the, scre- on the screen so you can get there rapidly. You can use an electronic device. If you're going to use a Bible app in that, that works. One way or another, please have the scriptures before you so that God would speak to you through his word this morning. If you're joining us online or you're in the overflow, it's the same invitation. We are longing to be able to study the word of God with you, so we invite you to have a Bible. Open it up, be with us this morning, and long that God would speak to us through his word. Well, that is our aim, our need, and our hope. Let's take one more moment and pray. I'll lead, but I'm hoping you would pray as well. That quietly we would just ask God to speak to us through his word this morning, recognizing we need him to open it up to us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and powerful and good. God, we look to you this morning. I look to you. Recognizing our need is for you to open up your truth to us in a way that both is understandable, but connects into our lives. God, would you grant us favor? Would you give us ears to hear what you're saying and speaking so that we hear it this morning, together but individually, knowing what you're saying to us? And that that would work good into our lives this morning. God, I ask for that for each of us here in this space and time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians. Yeah, this morning we began a brand new study, working verse by verse through this book. And as we begin that, maybe it's even just helpful to pause at the very beginning and ask a little bit of the question, like, why? Why are we studying 2 Corinthians here on Sunday morning? Well, let me just make sure I answer a couple questions that some would have, maybe not all, but just to try to make sure that I answer them. First of all, it's not because we just finished 1 Corinthians. In case you're like, did we just do 1 Corinthians? And I don't really remember. I'm trying to think. No, we didn't just do 1 Corinthians. And it doesn't always work that way, by the way. So 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, both written to a church in the same community, but it's not like a sequel. It's not like, you know, well, you got to watch the first one before you can watch the second one, and you'll never understand what's happening kind of deal. No, it's not the way it works. Each book dealing with its themes that are unique to that. And so, again, it's not that we need to work through 1 Corinthians to get there. What God has in 2 Corinthians stands alone and worth our, our understanding. There'll be a couple small things that need just kind of tie back to, but we'll, we'll do that uh, when we get there. But again, it's where we are. Now, just if you're new here, or even if you're not, sometimes it's just helpful to be reminded, as a pattern for us on Sunday mornings as a church, we work verse by verse through a book of the Bible. There's power in that. We just recognize that. We recognize that instead of just randomly picking subjects, there's something about just teaching through books of the Bible that find itself covering all that God has us to do, and so that's really, really helpful but maybe answering questions that nobody has. It's not that we have a pattern that we work through on Sunday morning. It's not like, okay, well, we finished this book and now we go here. Uh, Eventually, hopefully, we'll cover all of them if God gave us time and we work through that. Uh, On Wednesday nights, we are working sequentially. We go through the Old Testament, New Testament together, but Sunday mornings, we, we, we pick a book in many ways, seeing which one God led us to. And so with a very simple sense, 
I can tell you we're starting 2 Corinthians because I just have a really strong sense that that's where God has us to land. That is, we just sought him, prayed over where we'd be. There's just a sense that what God would want to speak to us is found in this book and maybe even saying it differently. The issues that God's dealing with in 2 Corinthians, well, maybe those are the issues that have a sense that God is wanting to work in us. Now, that might just be enough, but even just to kind of say it a little bit more, when I first began sensing that God was taking us to 2 Corinthians, I honestly did wonder. It's like, well, I wonder if we should do 1 Corinthians first. You know, it's like, you know, maybe you should do that. And I read through 1 Corinthians, and I liked it. I mean, you know, love the Word of God. It's like, well, I could see that. That would be fun to talk about. But it really wasn't landing. But when I read through 2 Corinthians, I don't know how to communicate it better other than to say I could sense it. If you've ever, like, been out to the ocean, and you kind of, you know, you're standing there in the ocean, you begin to feel the wave pull out and, and just kind of the, the weight build before you. And you know, man, a wave's getting ready to break. I mean, there's just something that's about ready to crash upon us. That's kind of how it feels. It's just it's in a sense when I read this, it's like, okay, I know this is where we're going to go. I know this is where we're going to land. There's going to be a sense of, of just the, the, the work of God happening in and upon our lives. And so with expectation of that and with desire of that, we begin to step towards 2 Corinthians this morning again to understand what God's dealing with. Well, that brings us back to the question. So what was it that God was dealing with in 2 Corinthians? What's the, the main thing that runs through this whole letter? Well, before I answer that, let's back up and just kind of see the, the framework where it lands. Let's think about this because notice with me how it begins. You got your Bibles open there in chapter 1. Notice with me there verses 1 and 2. It says it this way, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Archaea, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is Paul's introduction to the letter, his statement, hey, I'm writing, this is, this is from Paul to the church there in Corinth. And as we process through that for a moment, it might just be helpful to kind of catch the backlog to that, to understand the relationship that was heading up into this moment, the things that were taking place as we begin to watch what happened and, and, and the things that God used Paul for and how this all began. So I'll tell you what, keep a marker here in 2 Corinthians, and now turn left in your Bible. Let's go back to kind of the beginning of the story for Paul. Go to the book of Acts with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. So leaving Corinthians, but hopefully leaving a mark, because we will be back. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Thought it might just be helpful to begin here, because it's the beginning of the, of the story of Paul, his salvation, the moment when God gets a hold of his life and begins calling him uh, for the things that God has for him. If you're unfamiliar with this, though most of you are not, uh, here in the book of Acts, he was still going by the name of Saul. His name will eventually change to Paul for lots of really cool reasons, but for us it's enough to know that it's speaking of the same man, and it gives it to us at the beginning there in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then Saul, that's our guy, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, which is Christianity, which is us, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So you dive into this moment and you see this place before Paul gets saved. And he is not just unsaved, he is radically unsaved. He is an adversary of the church. He is one that is hunting down 
Christians and arresting them, uh, putting them and punishing them. I mean, he is a, a full-on strong adversary against Christ. But then it tells us in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then he, that is Paul, Saul, says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? It's a huge moment. Words fail to even unpack all that's there. Jesus just meets him, I mean, in this blinding light from heaven, showing who he is, showing that he's God. And more than that, he just asks Paul, like, Boy, it's pretty hard fighting against me, isn't it? I mean, in one sense, showing the reason that Paul is such an adversary is because he's resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. But as Jesus says these words, it all shifts. Things fall in place. He begins to recognize who Jesus is. And so in verse 6, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Like, okay, I, I surrender. I mean, you, you're the Lord. What do, you, what, do you, what do you have for me? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. That's exactly what Paul does. He's blinded, by the way, ends up in the city of Damascus, waiting for several days. God then instructs Ananias, a believer there in the city of Damascus, to meet him. Jump on down to verse 15, and we pick it up there as God is speaking to Ananias. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road as you came, and he has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Boom. And he is. I mean, it's an amazing moment. It's this incredible salvation moment for the Apostle Paul. This place where he is met by Jesus and transformed, believing in him. But at the same moment, God begins to speak of the purpose of his life. He begins to tell him, hey, this is what my plan is for you. As he says here, you're going to be a chosen vessel of mine in verse 15. That you're going to take my name to the Gentiles. You're going to take my name into the world that doesn't yet know Jesus, this, this place of those who weren't yet, you know, who are not Jews and who hadn't heard of all these things, kings, and even yet still the children of Israel. And then notice verse 16. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. You might just tuck that little verse away in your head. You might come back to it later. If not, we'll definitely touch on it in the future. But from the very get-go, from the very beginning, Paul's told, I'm going to use you. And it's going to hurt. I mean, there's going to be a lot of suffering. There's going to be a lot of things you're going to go through that's going to be a part of my life, me using you, and it's going to be that where you're going to be part of my vessel that's going to take the gospel to the world. Really, really cool, really, really exciting, and that was the beginning for the Apostle Paul. He begins and uh, begins to be one who's set aside for him. He, he serves him for a number of years, times of preparation. Barnabas uh, meets with him, and then in chapter 13, he's really called to go and be a missionary, to take the gospel to the world. So fast forward, you're there in chapter 9. Go over to chapter 13. There in verse 1, we notice it. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, 
there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. That is, they sent them out on their mission trip. They sent them out to begin taking the gospel into unreached territory, places where people had not yet heard of Christ. And if you've read through the book of Acts, you know the story. They begin this unfolding place where Paul and Barnabas begin that journey. This might be helpful just to throw it up on the screen. As we look at the region there, they begin over there in Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey, kind of zoom in there for a little bit. They, they head down to Cyprus, kind of following the blue line, landing up in Perga, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. They take the gospel city by city, place by place, each one fascinating, incredible spaces where the gospel begins just to make incredible impact. It's Paul's first missionary journey. He goes on three of them in the book of Acts. His first one begins to take it into unknown territory and into Gentile territory. number of things happen in the midst between the first and second one, but just fast-forwarding to it, he then launches out again. He launches out again on his second missionary journey that would look like this, kind of moving out through the world. He began, his heart was to go back into the cities where they'd planted churches, where they'd begun telling people about Jesus. And so he goes back uh, to Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, and Pisidia. He goes to the places where they'd gone the first time, tries to see how everybody's doing, encouraging them, and then he wants to go further. Then he wants to take the gospel into other regions where it hasn't been yet known. And if you've read through the book of Acts, you might remember, the Holy Spirit blocks him. He tries to go north into Galatia, and the Holy Spirit, no, can't go there. Tries to go south, down, down, down into you know, Asia, the Holy Spirit blocks him, he can't do there. And he's kind of, you know, how he's kind of, you know, barricaded into this. He ends up going up to Troas up at the top uh, left of the screen, and there in Troas, he's kind of waiting and trying to figure out what to do, and he gets a vision. What we sometimes call his Macedonian vision, where he gets a vision of a need there in Macedonia, and he, he comes to the conclusion, yeah, that's exactly where I'm supposed to go. So he hops in his ship, begins crossing over, he heads over into Macedonia, and begins in this region to begin to take the gospel into Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, then all the way down into Athens. And some of you know this story, if you've read through the book of Acts, there in, in Mars Hill, you know, proclaiming the gospel. But from Athens, he goes and he lands in the city of Corinth. That's our city. That's the, where this letter is written to. He begins to bring the, the gospel there in this region of Archaea, just kind of taking the gospel into a key city in the midst of that. And, and he, again, is that one that, used by God, plants the church, brings the gospel to this city, which is an incredible thing. So let's notice that. Turn in now in the book of Acts over to Acts chapter 18, just so we can see the beginning of the story with this city. Acts chapter 18, the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, begins there in verse 1. It says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens. So he leaves up in Athens where he'd been preaching the gospel, and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, 
and worked with by occupation, they were tent makers. I mean, it's a beginning of a new relationship. I mean, these are going to be key people in much of the rest of his ministry, but they meet there, they're serving. Picking it up in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So there he is. He's there in Corinth, and, and every week he's, he's going on, on the Sabbath to the, where, the, where the Jews would meet, and he's talking to them about Jesus. He's trying his best uh, to persuade them of everything that's going to happen in the midst of that. And then it tells us in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, their coming gives him boldness and encouragement. He just boldly begins telling everybody who Jesus is. But when they opposed him, verse 6, and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean. For now I will go to the Gentiles. Lots of fun stuff in the midst of that. I mean, he'd reached out to the Jews first, biblically, practically wise. As they resisted, he says, I've, I've, really, I've come to tell people who aren't Jews, who are the Gentiles. I'm again to take the gospel to them. Good news for all of us. Verse 7, and he departed from there, entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians were hearing, believed, and were baptized. Wow, that's just got to be quite a story. I mean, it's just got to be quite a story. Yeah, the Jews were beginning more in my rate, but Paul goes to preach to the Gentiles, but then the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. I mean, like the guy who's the head over the whole thing. I mean, it's this incredible moment, but it was incredibly difficult. I mean, the opposition that that must have felt like that we know in the midst of it, you know, it just increases so much so that it's just putting much pressure on Paul. We know that because it's right here where Jesus comes into his life to encourage him. Verse 9 says, And the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid. Quick pause. Like, you don't tell anybody not to be afraid unless they're afraid. So Paul must have been afraid. He's like, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear right now. Don't let this keep you back. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Wow. Incredible encouragement to, to the Apostle Paul, like, hey, I'm with you. Like, don't give in to fear. Just keep speaking. Keep testifying of me. I mean, there's a lot of people that I want to reach in this city. So he does. It says in verse 11, so he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul spends a year and a half, which is a long time in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's a traveling missionary, and most of his uh, stays are much shorter than this, but now he spends a year and a half in the city of Corinth, planting the church, just evangelizing, bringing just, just help into all of that, greatly being used into the midst of that until he departs and goes on. Verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for, Sil for, for, for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Wow. So incredible spaces. I mean, we're just watching this whole thing. We're watching Paul being used. And so we look at this church, and it's really, really helpful and, again, quite important to recognize the history. Paul planted the church. I mean, he's the one that brought the gospel to them. Well, the relationship between that beginning and where we are in 2 Corinthians, well, some of it we have to put together in different pieces. And there is some speculation among Bible students. Nevertheless, there's a few things that we're certain of. 
Somewhere in the midst of that, Paul writes a letter that he talks about in 1 Corinthians that we don't have a copy of that wasn't recorded for us in Scripture, where he's encouraging them to live for him. That brings confusion and questions, so they write Paul a letter, asking him a number, number of questions, and 1 Corinthians then is his response. In 1 Corinthians, he, he answers that. Oh, by the way, I guess I should hit this because that's nice about my slides. Uh, Corinthians was one of the most important cities in Greece, capital of a Roman province, incredibly influential, and just its power in the midst of it, just much in the midst of that space that would become just for the entire region uh, greatly powerful in the midst of that. Okay, now going back to where I was, sorry. Uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul's answering questions. He's solving some of the problems. They ask him questions about both divisions as well as meat sacrifice to idols, spiritual gifts, the resurrection. And so just piece by piece, Paul deals with all of those questions, but he also begins to confront them. He confronts them very seriously because they're allowing great sin in the church. That's something we'll talk about more because it continues into chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, so we'll cover that more when we get there. But it's enough to say that it was serious. So much so that somewhere in the midst of this, it would seem that Paul has a second visit to the, to the city of Corinth that isn't recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, we know that as we get to second, the end of 2 Corinthians, he tells us it's going to be the third time uh, that he's going to the city of Corinth. And so somewhere in the midst of there, he has another visit that, that just is in the midst of that. And it would seem to be a painful visit. In fact, now just go there, leave the book of Acts, go back to the book of 2 Corinthians and notice it with me. So hopefully you kept a marker there so that you can get there rapidly and turn to chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul begins to encourage them and tell them of his desire to come and see them. But he says in verse 1, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Most Bible students see this, that this must be a reference to his second visit. It must have been a hard one. It, It must have been something that he, you know, they don't respond well to some of the issues in 1 Corinthians. They don't turn from sin. He comes to it and deals with it forcefully, and it's a hard visit. And it would seem that it creates weight, division, uh, hurt, wounds kind of deal, where for a little while there's a separation, that they're frustrated or, 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 or struggling with things that Paul had been sharing with them. But then they begin to change. Uh, They begin to change. Paul continues to keep in contact with them. He sends uh, Timothy, he sends uh, just Titus to them in different spaces where they can get there. And he gets a report back from Titus that they're changing, that that they find themselves uh, both just turning from their sin, but also their hearts moving back towards uh, the Apostle Paul. Head over to chapter 7 with me just for a moment so you can see it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Notice it down there in verse 6. It says, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the consolation which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I did make you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorrow, but only for a while. And he goes on to talk about their repentance. We'll talk more about that when we get to that in chapter 7. But you just need to feel it for a moment. Titus comes back, and and Titus has not only been able to visit the city of Corinth, he tells them, hey, they've turned. 
they've accepted your, your confrontation. They've turned from the sin that they were doing. They recognize they were doing the wrong thing. And more than that, they, they find their hearts being moved back to the Apostle Paul where they're like, oh, we, we're sorry that we resisted. We're just that, that whatever tension had been created in those spaces, they're, they're longing for that to be restored. And so that's out of the environment that now 2 Corinthians is being written. Paul writes this letter both to make that connection uh, to, to restore and speak life into that, to rejuvenate that. But at the same moment, he's going to bring in another correction. Another correction that's going to deal with things that aren't in the same space that the previous correction was, but it is a correction nevertheless. That he's going to try to expose some things in Second Corinthians that are happening in the midst of that that's going to meet them right where they are. Okay. Pause with me and breathe just for a moment, and let's just, just kind of wrestle with where we are. So some of you, like, you're totally with me right now. You're like, man, this is so fascinating. I love all this history. I, I wish we could know more. Let's talk more about it. And I tell you, it's fun. It's fun to see how the whole picture kind of comes together and to see this history of everything. Yes, it plays into this moment. But let's be honest. For some of you, you're like, what? Like, just like I, I don't even, I'm trying to pick, put all this together, and I, I, I probably should have, I just, I'm trying to figure out what you just said, and I just want to say, well, in one sense, it's helpful to see the history, but it's enough right now now to join me and recognize all that just plays into this moment, that Paul is writing a letter to these people that he planted the church th- there, they've struggled, but now they have a place, and yet he's going to talk to them very seriously about some things that they're needing to hear that I wonder in Christ if we're needing to hear. So now let's come back to maybe the central question. So what is the big deal in 2 Corinthians? What's the main subject matter? What are the things that Paul deals with most in this letter that maybe we need to hear? Or we should at least expect that God would speak to us as we gaze into this in this study. Well, I would tell you that I look on it and I think that the theme of 2 Corinthians really finds itself in this description of power or the power of God in weakness. Well, how so? Well, think about it in a number of ways. Let me just kind of scoot that up off the screen so we have some space for it. Maybe you're aware of and maybe you're not, but 2 Corinthians is the letter where Paul is the most vulnerable of any of the letters that he writes. Um, it's not a major doctrinal letter, although there's great doctrine in the midst of uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll see some great things, but it's not like many of his other letters. So Romans is like this doctrinal treatise on the greatness of salvation, uh, of, of how that works and understanding the gospel. Galatians is dealing with the problems of, of legalism and, and some of the going back under the law. We get Corinthians that's like this letter of answering questions. I mean, each of these are powerful, but those are not the weight that flows in 2 Corinthians. Instead, Paul's going to explain things, and he's going to take us behind the scenes. He's going to show us his heart. He's going to show us his struggles. He's going to be the most transparent uh, that he is anywhere in the scriptures that's going to help us understand and, and see him and and see where those things are. And in the midst of this, the main thing that's going to run the entire gamut is we're going to discover weakness. We're going to discover from, from the get-go. In fact, every chapter of 2 Corinthians touches on this. 
if you've read through 2 Corinthians, maybe you would recognize it, that it's going to begin by talking about how God meets us and comforts us in all of our difficulties. And then he's going to talk to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 about kind of just misunderstandings and relational problems and, and, and how even those find themselves in weakness. He'll transfer that into, into the idea of understanding ministry. And he'll talk about how insufficient we are in chapter 3. And just like we are nothing, we are, we are so inadequate that, that there is a, a full inadequacy of who we are. And then he's going to go even further and talk about how that transfers into our physical lives. Like part of the way that we get to share the gospel and, and, and do this is we're living in these lives where our bodies are going in the wrong direction. He's going to say they're like a tent that's breaking down. You know, that there's, there's on this, this downward curve. And, you know, even though we're, he's going to say, you know, our bodies, they're, 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 they're going down day by day, but inwardly we're getting renewed day by day. And then he's going to talk about how that works, even into chapter 6. And he's going to say, you know, it's as if we have this incredible gospel, but it's in these jars of clay. It's in these broken bodies and, and physical things. He's going to help us process through that a little bit and even God's plan in the midst of that. In that, we're going to dive into sin. We're going to talk about that in chapter 7 and just the weakness that is even there, but even the response to that. Chapters 8 and 9, he's going to talk about giving, and that'll be powerful in the midst of it. But in much of it, it's going to talk about the weakness that always pervades the church of Jesus Christ, that there's always needs and part of the church to do that. And we'll talk much about this, but weakness really is there. But it's going to keep on going until it really gets to the kind of the, the main space where Paul, you know, almost as if you've been walking through the whole letter and feeling it, he's going to take us to its crescendo. He's going to take us to the, to, to the weight of all that's there, and that's really found in chapter 12. So why don't you just go there with me for a moment? You're there in chapter 7, so hopefully just a couple chapters there to your right, near the end of the letter before his final greetings in chapter 13. Paul's unpacking. He's unpacking even his own struggles and some of the, the things that God did in his own life, visions and things that God gave him. But in the midst of us, he lets us know some of his struggle, some of his weakness. Pick it up with me there in chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I mean, he's like, Lord, I don't want this. Take this whole thing away. But then Jesus speaks to him. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Pause there. One of the things that Paul is going to discover, and he's going to help us discover, both in his own life, but hopefully in ours, is this place of understanding that weakness is actually God's perfect plan for us. That it's not an accident that, that we're living a lives that are struggling with weakness. He's going to hear from Jesus, he's like, hey, this is perfect. This is exactly what I have for you. Like, this is the, the, the life that I want for you. This is that, that space where, where instead of rescuing from weakness, he's going to tell Paul, no, that's exactly where I want you to be. For my grace is made perfect in weakness. That God's perfect plan is that. Now, one of the things we want to just talk about, both a little bit now, but much more in weeks to come, is really beginning to understand the truth of that. That is not an accident. It's not, it's not just you know, circumstantial. It's what God wants. Think about it this way for, with me for a moment. It is not always going to be this way. If you are a follower of Jesus, can I tell you, 
heaven is coming. And that's going to be really good news. Weakness is no longer going to be there. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more suffering. There's no more person. I mean, everything that makes us weak here is not going to exist there. That's really, really good news. But that's not what he has for us right now. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident that, that, that he has us here in this life and that he wants that weakness to be a part of our existence. He's going to help us understand that instead of that being a liability to us, that is where God's power is found. That is where his power is found. Again, I just want you to notice it there in verse 9. Jesus speaking to him, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, I read that to you, and, and you probably understand it. I've taught this before, and yet I'm just going to be honest with you. It's still one of these truths that I'm struggling to learn. Because I just want you to hear what he said. It's perfect. It's perfect when you're weak and he's strong. You know what perfection is, right? Perfection is it can't get better. Have you ever got like perfect on a test? You know, if you get perfect on a test, you can't do better than perfect. You got everything right. And he says, it's perfect. It is perfect when you're weak and he's strong. Can I just pause with you and say, I don't know if you believe that. I don't know if I totally believe that. I got to be honest. I, I want to talk him into something different. No, I think it would be perfect if I could be strong and you be strong. I think it would be great. I think it would be absolutely wonderful. I mean, that would be, you know, my best life now kind of deal. Let's go that direction. I mean, that just sounds so much better than, and he said, no, no, this is really, really good. This is a really, really good thing. It, it's good for you to be weak because when you're weak, that's where strength is known. For the Apostle Paul, that's not just a reality that's spoken over his life. It becomes something he believes. And maybe that's a big part of 2 Corinthians, a place where we want to look on this and not just recognize truth, but to believe it. For we're going to be invited to embrace it as Paul does. How does he do it? Let's go back and read it. Verse 9, just for the context. He, Jesus is speaking to him, said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul saying, okay, I began to think this through. Therefore, because that's true, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Wow. So therein lies the invitation, this place where we're going to be invited to do this. And maybe, maybe that all by itself is just helpful to you. But I'm just going to tell you, it is desperately what we need because here's what I know. We are weak. There's not anybody in this room right now that isn't just besought by so many things that feel less than strong, feel weakness in your life. But if you're like most of us, it's not translating like it ought to translate. That maybe for some of us, again, maybe I'm just speaking to myself and you guys just get to listen. Um, we can find ourselves thinking, you know, it, when, when things go well, you know, when, 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 it, when things are looking up, when, when there's healing and power or things, God is present. Like, I just want to, I know that. And, and, and that's where I want to live. 
But Paul says, no, I figured out that places where I'm weak, this is so good because this is where God's strength can be known. And he says, for him, he began to be excited about his weakness. He began to, to find pleasure and delight where he was weak. So let's just read that again. So he's looking at this. He says, therefore, most gladly, I'll boast in my infirmities because I want power. I want the power of Christ to rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities. Like when I get sick, I'm so excited. This is like, I'm sick. This is great. You know, I mean, I'm so glad to, because this is, this is a place now that God's power can rest. I'm so excited when I can be sick. I'm so excited when, when, I, when I have reproaches, when, when, there's, when there's adversaries, when there's problems, when there's difficulties. This is so good. What a great thing it is to have problems with people and, and, and stuff because this is a place for God to come through. I'm so excited when I have needs, when I'm not enough, when there's not enough money in the bank account. This is great. This is wonderful, he says. I'm excited when I'm persecuted, when people are resisting the gospel. I'm, when I'm in distress, which has the idea of translating it into modern day language. When I'm stressed out, this is wonderful. This is great. I'm so glad to be stressed. I'm so glad for Christ's sake. Why? Because there's weakness that compels me to his strength. So the invitation is going to become a place where those weaknesses, they're not accidental. They're, not, not on, they're, they're on purpose, that God has a place for us, and those moments are meant to be power in our lives. Now, maybe they are in yours. Maybe we're going to be approaching this, and you're like, Jim, I already got this all figured out doing that. But if you're like many of us, we're going to go, huh, I don't, know how to, I don't know if I'm doing that. I don't know if I'm translating my weakness into strength. I don't know if I'm taking weak things in my life and saying, God, I want, I want to step towards power. I want power in those moments. I, I, want, I want to find what God, I want to find the gospel, I want to find power in that reality, and that's exactly what he's going to invite us to, that much of Second Corinthians is going to show us how that happens in and through the life of the Apostle Paul, that even in the best of moments, even in moments when he's holding fast to righteousness, how much he struggled underneath, how many weaknesses and fears and doubts were a part of it, and yet those things were key in the power that would be displayed. And so there's going to be an invitation for you and I to, to see weakness in our life and embrace it, and embrace it. Not that we're creating it, but that in everything that God leaves us in that, that we long for that for power. Part of what Paul's confronting is a rejection of that. It was a rejection that really was becoming very real there in the city of Corinth. It's been there from, in Corinth, it's been around the church from that point to this point. It's never not been an issue in the church, but it's important for us just to think it through for a moment. What's the issue? Well, the danger was almost this plastic Christianity, a display of Christ that pretends not to be weak and therefore is void of the power of Christ. There's this pretense where they were beginning to try to build a church that looked good. Now, it's kind of a really crazy thing. We'll talk much about it in 2 Corinthians. I mean, they begin to try to build this man-centered uh, kind of church thing. At one point, you know, beginning to, to look for uh, human uh, credentials. At one point, they even ask Paul, the guy who planted the church, the Apostle Paul, for his credentials. Like, what kind of credentials do you have? You know, why, why should we? I mean, it's kind of this crazy place. And they begin to look at Paul as this missionary, as this apostle, and they're not so excited. And so they begin to have their own uh, kind of leaders that they look to that Paul is going to kind of mockingly uh, 
spiritually good. I mean, but he's going to kind of say, well, they're super apostles. So it's good. You guys, you guys have super apostles who never have problems. And they do, boy, they seem to just magnanimous in everything they do. And he's going to speak in a way, but he's going to do so in such a way that hopefully you'll see as they would see. That's not true. What they're looking at is plastic. What they're looking at is plastic. And there's this reality of Christ. There's this reality of Christ that is, is, is meant to be on display in our lives. And part of where that's found is in our weakness. See, our weakness, again, is not an accident. It, it's, it's not going to be forever. So if you know Jesus, again, it's coming. Heaven is coming. There's not going to be pain, sorrow, or suffering there. But here there is. And that's on purpose. God wants it. God wants us to be that way. Why? Well, we'll talk about it in so many ways. But part of the issue is the display of the gospel, that the gospel is communicated in no other better way than through our weakness, that the suffering Savior who entered into world, this world to die for our sins, that gospel now becomes this display that happens not through our perfection, not because we're perfect and have no problems, but in our weaknesses, the gospel becomes this place where it becomes power. Our weaknesses now become platforms for that. Where he's going to say in chapter 6, he says, as we walk in this, as we have this, this, this incredible treasure and these jars of clays, we have an aroma of Christ. We have this aroma of Christ where people can be like, what is that? <laughs> I mean, I smell something. I smell something that smells so good, but I look at you and you're not perfect. I mean, I look at you, and you're struggling, and you're weak, and you get sick, and, and, and you're going to die like the rest of us. What is this? And it's the gospel that becomes powerfully attractive, and there ought to be something so much about that, and it is so much what we need. Now, let me try to say that another way. This plastic Christianity existed then. It exists today, and it is problematic on so many levels. It is problematic on so many levels. It keeps people. Uh, from the reality of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're watching online, and it's kind of a weird thing. I, I've sat down and had comments with some of those conversations, and maybe I'd even ask you right now, so why not? Why, why, have you, why won't you surrender your life to Jesus? Why not give your life to him now? And it's not uncommon to have somebody say something like this. Well, you know, I, I think I'm going to do that as soon as I get my life fixed. I've kind of made a mess of things, and as soon as I kind of turn things around a little bit, then I'll start coming to church, and then I'll give my life to Jesus, but I've made a mess of things, and so, you know, I, I certainly have to fix that before I become a follower of Jesus. Where in the world did you get that notion? I mean, where in the world did you get this under, think that what Jesus was looking, because you can't fix yourself. You are broken. Your sin fractures all of your life. Whatever you see right now, it's worse than you know. It is worse than you understand, and you need Jesus. It's your brokenness. It's your, your weakness that needs to compel you to a need of a Savior who becomes everything for you. And if that's not clear to you right now, we plead with you to understand you desperately need Jesus today in the brokenness that you are. But why would people believe such a thing? Because sometimes that's what we look like. That's the image that the church sometimes portrays. It's this plastic Christianity where we show up on a Sunday, and so we greet one another, and people ask you, like, how are you doing? And you know, all right, well, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Now, please don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not asking you to unpack all your baggage at the door. <laughs> don't do that to our greeters. I mean, that's not, that's not I, mean, I mean, you need to talk to somebody. You can talk to somebody, but let's just be honest. There's not anybody in this room who's doing great. There's not anybody. 
I don't think there's anybody in this room right now that you really are physically really healthy. The, the, the sickness that permeates our world has affected all of our lives. And, and that brokenness is touching you physically and emotionally, and you are struggling. There's not anybody here right now that, that you're not having some hard spaces uh, where, you, where your worries or your stresses. But here's the weird thing. We come together as a church, and instead of recognizing it's in our brokenness that we find help in Jesus, we pretend to be well. But it goes further than that. It begins to affect our very relationship with Jesus. So instead of allowing our weaknesses to compel us to our need for Jesus, we kind of pretend with him as well. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we want Jesus, and so we're praying, hey, make me healthy, huh? you know, bless me with a job, and if any of those things happen, then we're really excited with Jesus, like, Jesus made me healthy, like, he did, this is really, really great, but weak moments aren't translating into relationship for many of us. In fact, we're not even really honest with Jesus. Uh, we're almost embarrassed to come to him and say, Lord, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. I, I, I'm not, you know, I mean, my heart, you know, I'm, just, I'm, really, I'm, I'm, I'm having difficult spaces, and, and we haven't allowed those weaknesses to even be real in a relationship, and because we're not connecting with Jesus in our weakness, we are missing out on power. We're missing out on power that isn't always healing, that isn't always fixing our situations, that sometimes leaves us right in the middle of it and says, no, 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 <laughs> this is really good. This is a great space for God's grace to be manifest. In your weaknesses, he is strong. So that right now what the church needs to be and what God would invite us to be is to be able to come together as a church where we would know, even if we don't share it every moment at the door, we would know we are all weak. And I'm with a bunch of people that we desperately need Jesus. And we're having hard spaces and hard times. And instead of magnifying ourselves and pretending to be perfect, kind of having these pretentious places of, of looking good, we would be pressing towards actual reality of the gospel. And, and, and both knowing that, which would be life to us, but it would become that diffusing of the gospel in powerful ways. I'm just telling you, this is a really, really big deal. It's a really, really big deal. And it would change so much in our lives. But it's a serious danger. Let me try one more way. So I think about it this way. Paul warns it in 2 Timothy. He says, but know this, in the last days perilous times will come. So quick preface. He says, the closer and closer we get to Jesus, the more and more difficult it's going to come. So at those last moments, it's going to be really, really, really difficult. Now, none of us know when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus told us that, so we're just clear about that. But I'm just going to be honest. I think it's really soon. Like I am not, I, I don't think we'll make it through 2 Corinthians. I'm just thinking probably somewhere in the midst of this is very, very likely Jesus could come back. I'm hoping so. Very possible. And if I'm right, or if we're even close to right, then whatever this is, whatever it is that's going to make the last times difficult, it must certainly be the times that you and I live in. So what does that look like? What's the difficulty that Paul warns us about? Well, it's a mouthful, but let me just re read it with you quickly. It says, for... Those last days, men are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. They're going to be slanderers without self-control. They're going to be brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, that's a list, isn't it? I mean, just, but let's just be honest with you for a moment. 
you could put that on the front page of the paper and that would be the news. It's like, yep, that's exactly what it is. That's, that's, that's what's happening in our world today. A bunch of boastful, proud, arrogant, disobedient. I mean, that is our struggle in our world, but it's worse because in this description, he's not just describing the world. It's the idea that's beginning to permeate the church. So this place where we're supposed to gather on Sunday morning and love God, he says they love themselves, they love money, and, and they love pleasure rather than loving me. They love themselves, they love money, they love pleasures, they don't love God. And, 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 and yet somehow that begins to find itself as the display of the church in that age. In fact, he goes on to simply say they have a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. So using the terminology that I've used this morning, they're going to have a plastic church, but it's not going to have power. They're gonna, it's going to look like church. They're going to say they're church, but it's not really church. It's not really the real thing. They don't have the power of God. Instead of loving God, they love themselves. They love money. They love pleasure. They're missing out on the power. Well, it's certainly more than what we're talking about here in 2 Corinthians, but let's look at it back in our passage, right? So here's where Paul is saying it to us. He says there in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Like, I want power. I want the power of Christ to rest upon me. Where is that found? In my weakness, <laughs> in my weakness. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sakes. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's what's in partly needing to be displayed. And it's part of what makes 2 Corinthians this invitation to us to do that better. And again, maybe you already are, and maybe this will just be a good reminder. But I know I'm talking to some right now that you are not. I mean, honestly, you don't do weakness well. I don't necessarily do weakness well. It's like we don't like it. And it's not necessarily translating into power. It's not, as we, it's not as if we're discovering that. And it's as if we're missing out on something. We're missing out on the power of the gospel to impact our lives and shine through our lives in more real ways. And part of it is going to have to be this place where we embrace weakness so that the power of God would be known, so that the grace of God would be seen. I think about all of that, and one more thing before we close this morning, so we get all of this, and I like again how Jesus says it there in verse 9, it's worth just noting it, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, it's grace, he says what you need is grace, grace is undeserved power, undeserved favor from God, he says that is what you need. I think about that, and let's go back to the beginning of the letter with me for a moment. So leave there in chapter 12, go back to the beginning of 2 Corinthians, what we already read again this morning, and notice it one more time. So Paul's writing this. He says that there in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Timothy our brother, to the church, which is at Corinth, and all the saints who are in Archaea, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, God's grace to us is that, that place where he invites us and he speaks this here and a blessing, that's a common New Testament blessing. In fact, if you've heard it once here, you've heard it a dozen times. So I get to say very quickly something I try to say over and over to you again. So every New Testament letter really has this blessing in the middle of it. That right there at the beginning, usually Paul or, or one of the other apostles, they'll write and they'll say, hey, I'm writing you a letter. And then they just give this 
grace and peace to you. It's not always in the same exact wording, but it always includes those two big uh, realities. Actually, three, if you want to think. It's grace and peace from God. God the Father, Jesus Christ, it's grace and peace. It's an interesting thing to think through, you know, what's being said there. And one of the things I constantly have held out to you is I believe this New Testament blessing finds its origin in the Old Testament blessing. That the best way to understand the blessing in every letter is to understand the blessing where I think it finds its origin story, which you guys know because we share it with you almost every week. So there in the book of Numbers, God is giving instruction to the priests. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, hey, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the way that you shall bless the children of Israel. Here he's speaking to those who are God's representatives. The priest says, I want you to bless my people. Here's how you do it. Here's how you bring blessing on my people. You say this to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Most of you know that's how we end our service almost every Sunday. I speak that over you partly from this, but partly from even that New Testament rendering. It's like, hey, this is what you need. We need grace. We need peace. But can I just underscore it again? Grace is him. In the midst of our weakness, it's undeserved favor that sometimes is discovered best in our weakness. That his grace is sufficient for us. That when we're weak, then we find strength. So often it's our weakness that lets us embrace grace. It's where we know we're not strong that invites us to see God's grace in incredible ways. But God says, that's who I am. If you bless them like this, you're going to put my name on them. You remind them who I am, and they will be blessed. That's our desire. That's our aim. That's what we're hoping to discover in the book of 2 Corinthians, and that is my invitation to you this morning. So we begin our study kind of giving those first few, few verses, but just inviting you to see what's coming and inviting you into that. So you can close your Bibles, your notebooks. We need to end up there this morning with just an introduction and an invitation an invitation into this embracing of God's mercy and his grace. But I want to invite you to it right now. You know, as we think about it, I want to give you a moment uh, just to talk to God about what we've just talked about. And it might even be enough for you to recognize the need. Again, maybe you're already doing it well, or maybe you're not. It might be enough for you to take whatever is your weakness, and you have them right now, and say, God, I just want to bring it to you. I want to discover your grace in my weakness. You said, when I'm weak, then I could be strong. And God, I want to know more of what that looks like. I want to know the grace. I want to know the power of God so that the gospel would be on display in my life. And I invite you to ask him for that. I invite you to bring your life to him and long for God's power in this moment. As I invite you into that one more time, if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, that's what you need. You need salvation that you don't deserve. That is grace on you who are undeserving. And this morning, maybe just recognizing that. That God is not asking you to fix your life. You can't. He's asking you to give your life to him and let him fix your life. Let him bring restoration in your soul. Let him begin the one that begins the good work. And I want to tell you, it's a good, good work. But today, it's a good space for you to be invited into it. So would you take a quiet moment, talk to God about whatever he has met you in this morning. I'll do the same. And then we'll close together in worship in just a moment.
God, I think about your warning that in the last days it would get really difficult. Some of the difficulty is these worldly values permeating even your people that instead of loving you, begin to be those who love themselves and love money and love pleasure and all the brokenness in the midst of those things. God, I look on it now and just with sorrow see so much of that across just the, the Christian world today and so much of it even at times in my own heart I think about where you say that they would have a form of godliness but they deny its power and I just want to bring that before you and say Lord please rescue us from that please rescue us from being plastic and pretend pretending to be fine when we're not draw us to a place that instead of hiding our weakness from you even that we'd bring all of our weakness and say, Lord, here I am. I am weak. And I want to find this weakness compel me into your grace. I want to to know your power more than I know it. I want to know your presence more than I know it, even in the midst of these weaknesses. May they become things that instead of our hindrances become powerful and that the gospel would be known more. That the beauty of the gospel of Christ would be that aroma that would be just flowing in and out of our lives. This aroma of who you really are in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our weakness. God, may that just be magnified. May you be magnified in and on and through us. May you teach us. As much time as you give us in this book of 2 Corinthians, Lord, will you work good in it, drawing us to the, the, the power of Christ, to the, to the wonder of the gospel in fresh ways. I ask that for all of us, but I'm asking it for me, Lord. Just draw us after this, I ask, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God meet you. May he be one that begins to draw you to the power of God, found in weakness. May it become part of your life so much more. If you need someone to pray with, we're here. You can come up and talk to us afterwards. If you don't know Jesus, again, we're here. We'd love to talk to you about the gospel. Come up afterwards, and we'd love to just communicate more with you in that. But right now, it's closing worship. So why don't you stand? Let's worship him, and let me give you that blessing that we just covered in number six, just speaking it over your lives. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Give you peace.